welcome to the Delingpod with me, James Delingpod. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I really am. And I'm a bit worried because Charles Mallet has got so much stuff to talk about that we're not going to be able to cram it all in into a, into a podcast. And I, I, and I don't know where to start, Charles. I mean, I've... I glanced at your, you know I don't do any research, but, but you very kindly sent me your CV and it is absolutely bloody amazing. So it ranges from serving with the Coldstream Guards in Afghanistan um, to pretty much living off grid to church. We can do, we can do God, um, and, but also the police. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm suspecting that was probably your red-pilled moment wasn't it was it was that when because i imagine that 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 once you were a bit like me you were you fully believed in in queen and country as they then were and you and you believed in the system and you thought you thought um being born english was to win the lottery in in life and etc etc and british empire some never set etc and then suddenly there came a moment where you realized that the whole thing is a sham yes to an extent, I think that I believe there was always a way to forge one's own path regardless of the system. So I was, I think I was always aware of the flaws and my priority, or I suppose my outlook was to do what one could in as much as possible in one's own way. And I think you're absolutely right that that changed for me and I think for a huge number of people all over the world three years ago where suddenly it really was taken out of our control and we we weren't for the most part able to just push on everything stopped uh, and by coincidence policing at the time brought it brought it home I think in a way that it might not have done had I been doing something else yeah right I'm, you've now um piqued my curiosity that, that you're suggesting that you knew something was amiss with the system even before then because I, I don't think I, I did I genuinely thought for example I, this is sort of lightly relevant to your military experience a few years ago I was invited by um, the um, the commanding officer of uh, of um, the light dragoons to come and address his officers' mess and to play fireball hockey with them, um, and but to explain why they why they were in Afghanistan because they were about to go and deploy, um, and they wanted somebody to sort of make sense of it because, and and I and I, I came up with all the usual guff about about spreading democracy and all, all the crap that I believed at the time, and and there were one or two officers, even even then. Who knew that they were going out on a on, on a, a a false premise? Um, mm-hmm. And I was wondering whether you, perhaps you maybe you woke up earlier than I did. Well, I think I, I, you know, as, as everybody always says, you'll never you'll never fully awake. But um, I think you know, I, what I probably hadn't done was to join all my misgivings together, and and that's what twenty twenty and the time thereafter has done it's made me and I think a huge number of other people join the dots and and realize why things were as they were or were 
moving towards a place that they're now in. So I would say, funnily enough, I I had a very similar experience prior to uh, an Afghan deployment. And I remember, you know, I mean, I I think I've I've had a a healthy scepticism of of government and all the sort of ancillary organisations for as long as I can remember. But we had um, we had a briefing would have been back in 2007, sort of summer 2007, I think. And they were then, I think it was then called the Stabilisation Unit. So they were Foreign and Commonwealth Office, DFID and MOD. And the idea was to give us a sort of commander's brief on why we were going, what we were doing, what the, the big picture mission was all about. And it was paper thin. And I remember the question asked of this civil servant that undid her completely was to inquire about the economic plan for Afghanistan and she rather I suppose sort of ashamedly admitted that that was something they were still working on and you think that at that point it was six years in to that particular operation and yet there was no defined idea of what was supposed to happen to the Afghan economy, which was being destroyed by all the various interventions that were going on there. So uh, I think, and I know that probably sounds odd to be holding those views and yet still be doing doing the job, but the problem is, this is this is part of the, you know, the, the, the great dilemma of public service, I suppose. You, you you have an idea that what you want to do can be done within such an organisation. Let's take the army or indeed police. And in many ways, it can be. You, you, can, you can have that moment. You can, if you're being managed properly, you should be able to exercise discretion. You should be able to carry out whatever it is you've been asked to do in the way that you deem best possible. And you can justify that by using your own rationale your own decision making process obviously there are a number of sort of caveats and 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 whatnot to that but um that was my feeling on on the the afghan situation in particular looking back i think i've my 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 view of that and frankly any other operational theater that we've had involvement in has changed now um and i think that you know that it comes down to the fundamental problem that no matter what your intent, even as a junior commander, people will die. And that, frankly, should be avoided. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this has been one of the, the bizarre things for me. I, I don't know whether you've, you've had this experience, but I used to be really into war. I used to think mainly of myself for not having been a soldier. You know, I would have loved to have mm. done what, 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 what you did. Um, I was into my war stories and, and I believe that, that, that most of these wars were just that they were designed to, to spread democracy, etc, etc. And then you start waking up and you start looking into the history of these wars that, that hitherto you were into in a kind of war port. I mean, you know, I've read every book that's ever been written about Vietnam. Mm. I've seen every Vietnam movie. I, you know, I, I wished I'd have worn those, those um, Tiger Stripe Special Forces camouflage outfit like Robert De Niro does in, in The Deer Hunter. All, all mm. this crap. And now, when I realised that the only purpose of the Vietnam War was to 
generate money for the same people that always benefit from these wars and that it was provoked by the the americans in the gulf of tonkin incident and then, and then you mm. and then you realize that the same applies to the first gulf war that i think i think it was george w bush oh, sorry george bush senior let it saddam hussein actually said look we're thinking of invading um kuwait are you okay with this and i think it was madeline, madeline albright who, who who briefed him and said, yeah, it's going to be fine. You know, we, we have no problem with that. And then later on, it's like, evil Saddam has invaded Iraq, uh, invaded Kuwait. We must, and, and then, then they, they create these fake stories about babies being taken away out of incubators and stuff. A bit, the same propaganda used to get in at the beginning of World War One, where German soldiers were apparently killing babies and raping nurses and so on. Same, same playbook every single time. And then suddenly you get a bit cynical about mm. war, don't you? I think so. I mean, funnily enough, I th I, I don't, I'm not sure whether I'd be in a minority, but to be honest, the, the appeal of the armed forces for me wasn't about that. It was actually about the, the other stuff, the... The, the life the lifestyle that you led which was essentially being paid to be fit healthy intelligent and in charge of other people's lives and and i found that to be a really compelling sort of career um so the 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 warfare side of it was i say incidental i mean i don't mean to sound glib it, it obviously it was a part of it but i certainly wasn't lusting after that um plenty of people do and i think that's it was actually something i was going to mention about policing and and you know we'll, we'll probably go over more human nature stuff but i think one of the things that people are often unwilling to concede about the armed forces the army in particular the infantry in particular within the army is that a significant percentage of people that join the army do so in effect because it is a legitimate means of having the opportunity to kill other people mm. and i think that's something that's not really thought about very much and it should be um not least because it's it's dangerous to have people around that are like that in some senses although in others very good that they're not in places where they could potentially be harmful to the public so i think the army does an amazing job of containing an awful lot of that sort of testosterone fueled growing up period that people do and you know the results are tr transformative i mean to to see people coming in at the ages of sort of 16 17 18 with either minimal or no qualifications often with you know i know it's a bit of a stereotype but but perhaps troubled childhoods and all the rest of it and yet get spat out 20 22 years later able to do almost anything that that is remarkable and remarkable to think where they could have gone had they set out on a different path so I, that was the side of it that i was interested in and that that's why i found the demise of the armed forces uh on defense pretext um stupid you know the, the defense planning assumptions they've never ever got it right there's no reason to think they would now but uh to do away with uh, essentially a massive sort of welfare and development services is daft um mm. but anyway yeah so th that's that's sort of the way i looked at it but no you're right i mean i think i think on the the operational side of it you know yes one wanted to get the operational experience but but i would say not 
because you really wanted that fight. Some people did, and I'm afraid when you look at the the sort of you know the the trauma, mental trauma that people suffered. Uh, it's very sad, but a lot of people who really, really wanted that were the people that suffered most when they came face to face with it. So, yeah, it's, I, I would agree with you. Um, it's yeah, it is. It's not good. But, I think it is not something that people should want. Just on on that point, actually, that, that's interesting. You mean the people that who are most determined to see the elephant, as it were, who wanted to get there for yeah. war jollies were the ones is yeah. that because they put themselves in the way of danger more it, or, or or what no i I, well, it's, it's, I mean it's not an absolute but i can think of a lot of people who were who were very much sort of uh, you know up and atom type people to talk to and in training and appeared to want that more than anything else rather than just quietly getting on with it and yet it was it tended to be the people that quietly got on with it that suffered better mentally uh, than those who had been very, very keen to get stuck in. Um, and I think it was, it, it's sort of, it's bravado. Uh, I think that will carry people so far. But, but I did see a lot of people come unstuck who had held that, that sort of mentality before. That's really interesting, yeah. I mean, I, one of, the, one of the, the bits of the old me that I've, I've kept is I still have tremendous respect for people who've, Certainly, a, a, a sort of um, you know below below kind of. I think once you get to what the rank of, above lieutenant colonel, you're basically you become a, a, a hideous creature of the system. But before that point, I mean, I have great respect for the men who and, and women who you know put their lives on the line for what they probably believe is a very very good cause. So I haven't lost that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Tell me. Um, you went into the police. Well, first of all, what's it like being a kind of tough character, you know, ex-guards, going into the police? I mean, were you welcomed or did they think you were a bit of a freak? Well, I think if they thought I was a freak, there could have been any, any number of other reasons for that. But, um, no, uh, I have to say, uh, there, was, there was no overt judgment of my perhaps sort of otherness i mean yeah as you say i was in a, a a very small minority by by background but i think i think one of the one of the pleasant things about joining the police is that police by nature of what they do are very very used to dealing with people of all creeds and colors and so there is there is an acceptance i think of of absolutely anybody and everybody despite what you may see or believe but i think internally i think you know you you have to prove yourself i think you you'd probably be given a little bit more of a of a sort of you know suspicious i don't know you know grilling as it were um if you are in a, a minority or at least you've come from where I had come from but no I mean I found um I was I was very much welcomed it wasn't it wasn't any kind of problem at all I think if it, actually to be perfectly honest as is often the case people were just interested Do, I mean I like the way you describe yourself as a minority I mean you're the wrong kind of minority we know how eager the police is to to show itself you know being a rainbow outfit and, and stuff yeah. did, did you did you join before that period yeah. I mean was it was it slightly because would you get no, 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 no. I mean, no. Yeah, yeah, well, no. This is. I mean, I, I'm afraid I I have not been policing since Peel. I it was a very short-lived thing, and it was kind of 
it was it was unfortunate. They they were running a program um, in the late twenty teens, which sought to put people in a direct entry um, inspector position. So you so the idea was that you had you had a reasonable amount of sort of life experience, but particularly in in sort of command and leadership, and you would be able to go across into the police as an inspector and you know use your sort of perspective from outside and I had started on that um on that path literally before the the, the covid internment started and it wasn't actually to do with that but if you remember there was the um there was the rather fanciful pledge of putting 20,000 more constables on the street so the the fallout was that the inspector programme was, was bumped off the shelf and I then had to think again. But I have to admit, I was quite invested in the in in the idea of it by that stage because you know, what I had seen from the constabulary that I did join impressed me. I liked the idea of it. I, I was, despite what I've just said about the army, I was, you know, I was still drawn by public service and by the idea that, you know, if I believe in a community and I want to invest in it, then, then what's wrong with that? Um, and I'd seen by that stage, obviously, I'd seen a lot of the terrible footage from 2020 about, you know, the, the, the sort of appalling um, miscarriages of, of justice and unlawful behaviour and all that kind of thing. But I still thought, well, that's first of all, it's not going to be me. And secondly, that must only be a tiny minority of people. So I carried on with it and I joined what was a, a specific detective programme and yeah, like you say, it was, I mean, it was amusing only because every single person in the promotional literature did not look like me. So yes, to, to have got to sort of through the process before I'd even seen anyone else, because of course it was all done online. So I thought, gosh, you know, I wonder what everyone else is going to look like. They need to find that um, when we got spat out the other end and we did all meet up, everybody pretty much looked the same, i.e. British, uh, or at least, you know, white British. So despite the the illusion that um, that this campaign of diversification and all the rest of it was going to reap an enormous dividend, actually the reality was, was not quite that. Uh, but yeah, so um, it, it just it was a very strange time to, to join in the midst of all this stuff. And um, it got, yes, I think, as opposed to things tailing off after 2020, as you as you well remember, things just got worse and worse, and worse and worse both within policing and without. Well, actually, no. I'm puzzled. What 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 specific things are you talking? Oh, you mean the the the, the policing of of like sending drones in to spot people going for walks um, in the Peak District and that kind of thing? No, I think no. I, th I think I mean um, I mean policy wise. I mean government policy and. Um, media critique of government policy but also the, the the sort of shaping of people's minds and what they were supposed to think about their friends family and neighbors i think in 2020 and and okay it's quite a lot to try and remember now because there was so much that happened over yes. that period but I, but i feel that it during 2020 it was more a a case of the government just trying to terrify everybody that was it it was just that there wasn't there wasn't much discrimination in who got what in the sort of propaganda bombardment it was just everybody everybody was just sort of on permanent receive all the time whereas in 2021 with the you know with the the jab having started and then people could be divided 
on those lines the the you know the campaign the policy everything shifted towards uh creating a sort of a better tier of society people who you know in the workplace didn't have to go through certain protocols because they had demonstrated their compliance and obedience by receiving a a, a product uh, and all the rest of it so i think it, it became much more divisive during 2021 right well the thing i think that that, that struck me most about the the policing in that era was I'd never felt more conscious of just how politicised our police have become, and it's probably it's probably been the case for years. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you, you you look back at um at the policing of football matches, for example, and and but but anyway, and and all grief, the battle of all grief, um, but. I was having been on a few of the marches, for example, including the I think the very first anti-lockdown whatever march, uh, where I was almost arrested or I was threatened with arrest for just what for, for wandering mm. around a park with a few other people. Um, I was very conscious when a few weeks later there was a Black Lives Matter march, which got completely different treatment. To and, and, and not not just by the media, which 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 I mean, it got a double page pre- spread in the Mail on Sunday, for example, <laughs> which is, which had completely ignored all, all the much much bigger anti-lockdown marches. But the policing, the, the, it some of the events, the, the one in, there was one in Trafalgar Square where these people who were not obviously even English, they, they, they were sort of specialists. I mean, maybe you can tell me about this. Spe- you know, like, like what what used to be called the SPG. I don't know what it's called now, but nasty people yes. coming in sort of tooled up and, yeah. and and hurting the demonstrators well you never got that the black lives matter mm. um mm. demo we were, were you conscious of this from the inside that there were double standards going on yeah i think so i mean i, I personally didn't um didn't have to deal with with any of that on a sort of mass basis certainly the as far as the covid restrictions went i think well i think you know it's actually one one slight sort of side bar but um i think one thing that people don't consider enough is that a huge amount of what police were doing with regards to uh stopping people from going about their daily business and interfering in their lives not, i'm not talking about on a on a mass scale you know demonstrations or protests or whatnot but, but at the individual and sort of small you know family level it was entirely almost entirely because their neighbors and other members of the public were were reporting them that's how this was being generated people were Whoa. sneaking on each other that's why it happened so i think there's i think it's easy to to, to characterise the police as just being absolutely eternal busybodies and sort of hiding in hedges waiting for, you know, to see if more than six people come back out of a house or whatever the stupid rule was meant to be. But it it wasn't like that. It It was police doing what they're supposed to do, which is to respond to a call or an allegation made by a member of the public. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And, and, and but, you, but I mean, that's that's a I don't mean to exonerate police because, of course, what should really have happened, and this goes for a huge majority of police business, is that that should have been shut down absolutely immediately. It should not have got through, to my mind, through the force control room where where all these calls come into. People should have been told to mind their own business and just get on with life. Yes. And And I think that's the case for a huge number of the very trivial offences now and you look at something like free speech where 
in, in effect, people are under the Public Order Act and all these sorts of things. People are claiming to have been harmed or caused anxiety and all the rest of it. And again, it looks like police are deliberately sort of going after um, free thinkers or free speakers or whatever. But actually, they're being put in that position by people who are getting in touch with police in the first place to say, I've been caused anxiety by this. And so right. it, it, it's a, you know, it is a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, police are certainly to, to blame in that they are not getting rid of a, a, an unnecessary, pointless workload, I think. Um, so, yeah, sorry, that, that's a bit of a, um, a bit of a diversion. But no, uh, with regard, I mean, the, the, the distinction you make with between, say, Black Lives Matter and uh, a, a COVID protest would or be... Or Extinction Rebellion as well. Yeah, they got uh, given exactly. Ride. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, my my view is really that, that comes from um yeah the, the the sort of political or or chief officer level uh at which point a decision is made on the sort of the motives of those involved and i think such was the brainwashing that that the motives around protesting or demonstrating or anything to do with what was regarded as an infectious disease sort of boiled down to you want to harm people you want to make people ill and whereas with black lives matter or the climate or any of those sorts of things i think the the, the belief or at least the, the the reason that people were able to say that it would be policed in a different way was because the the the, the background the ideals were, were different and supposedly sort of for the benefit of society that's that's interesting. So so you mean that at a senior level, the police were actually making decisions on on, on, on making value judgments on the causes represented by by the the march. So that so that no matter how well behaved the marchers were, if they felt that that this was a okay that that, that protesting against vaccines and so on was a was a threat to the health of the nation, they would go in harder. Than, than say somebody protesting about the death of a a fentanyl addicted um, career criminal who got accidentally died in, in custody because because mm. overzealous policing in in, in America, <laughs> that's that's yeah, the deal. It, well, it sounds desperate, but I but I I'm afraid to say I, I think that that is in effect what what did happen or or what does happen, and. It would be nice to think that people that reach the office of chief constable uh, or even a couple of ranks below that would be able to see objectively what it is that they are doing or what they are supposed to be doing, but they can't. The, the brainwashing was complete. And, and I'll tell you what, I'll give you an example of that. Um, I've got something that I that I printed out because I thought it would be worth reading. I'm not sure. I've listened to an awful lot of your podcasts, but I don't think this has come up yet. Okay. Um, are you aware that policing of the COVID regulations was optional? It did not need to be done. And this was set out by House of Commons library briefing paper and... Chief constables effectively had the had the operational decision making process to go through to in order to decide whether or not 
they were going to commit manpower to it. So if you, you know, if you imagine that you're running a, a police force or a constabulary and you know, you've got a huge amount of various pressures on you and then somebody chucks in something completely new and different and says, right, I know you're overstretched, I know you haven't got any money, but I, I want you to do this. And it's not about crime, it's not really about public safety and it's not to do with consent of the public, but I would like you to do it. However, it is up to you. What will you do? So that so the um, the actual wording from the what was called enforcing restrictions, House of Commons briefing paper nine zero two four from second December twenty twenty, which I, it had been printed before that, but this is the version I've got. Police lockdown restriction enforcement is an operational matter for the police. This means police leaders open brackets, not national or local politicians, close brackets, decide whether and how to deploy their officers to lockdown enforcement. The National Police Chiefs Council say chief constables assess the threats and risks in their local areas alongside the national and local COVID-19 restrictions in place and resource their patrols and responses accordingly. There are 43 constabularies in the United Kingdom and not a single one of them decided that they were not going to police those restrictions. Wow. That, that doesn't get talked about very much. That doesn't actually get talked about at all. And, it, you know, we go through all these ridiculous whitewash inquiries and everything else, but I guarantee you this is something that will not be looked at. And yet, why would you? Why would you do it? If, if you believed, as a, a chief constable, you believed that there was a threat to public health that had the most incredible messaging campaign surrounding it, why would you feel that you needed to tell people to look after themselves? I'm 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 shocked actually. I'm, can can you try and enter the head? Is, is it is it is it groupthink? Is it because that you don't get yep. to a position a position like yep. that without being yeah brain dead? Yeah, effectively. I, well, I think no. I mean, I I think brain dead is definitely wrong. I mean, they are you know the, the, those that I met are intelligent, articulate, personable people and capable too. So you have to be. You can't bluff it. You know, you if you if you're not able to do what's required at the sort of you know strategic operational interface, you it won't work. You you will not be able to do that job. But but yes, I I, I think I can answer that question. Um, I remember early on in one of the training sessions that we had as a sort of um, a plenary group of across the national program, we were spoken to by a chief constable who was sort of. You know, describing his working day and I vividly remember him saying that the very first thing he did every morning was to check the mainstream press and social media and and he didn't go on to say but I'm sure what he meant was in order to work out what I should be doing and I think that's that is the lead that is taken and and again to exemplify that all police forces will have they'll call it slightly different things but they'll all have something like force priorities so they'll have you know four or five or six things that they're concentrating on because either they've been particularly bad in that area or, or whatever it is um in the wake of the obviously horrific tragic 
Sarah Everard murder and the subsequent, you know, investigation and um, trial and all the rest of it, there was, as you remember, there was a big explosion of focus on violence against women and girls. And in my constabulary, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that had been any more of a problem than than it usually is there was no there was no real uptick in um in incidents where we were policing however the very next day uh, a notice came out saying you know new force operational priority violence against women and girls and it it but i can't remember which priority it bumped off the list but it went it went straight to the top of the list and not only that but the county council had found down the back of the sofa, a million quid to give the constabulary in order to put cameras in places that women and girls felt unsafe or that they were most likely to be at risk of violence. Well, th- that place is in the home. So how how was that going to work? Um, so I think what I'm saying is it's all it, it it's a lot of it is is meaningless, and yet that's what people are fed, you know day by day that comes down it will be decided upon chief constable will will in effect take their lead from media sources or or you know some sort of government statement or what regardless totally regardless of what's actually going on in their area and implement it anyway and quite possibly disrupt entirely productive and well-meaning existing work so you know the consequence being that actually it's completely harmful to do that Yes, yes. Well, of course, what, once you get to the stage where you realise that the, the the media is is part of the of the line machine, it's not it's not there to serve the public interest or the readership or anything else. It's just it's just pure propaganda. You can yeah. see how dangerous it would be if if police chiefs are taking their lead from from these propaganda sheets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but, but, you know, but then again, I mean, the, the point is they shouldn't really be taking their lead from anybody. You know, they should be they should be running their operations according to what's going on right in front of them, but they don't. Do you think there's, there remains any concept, any understanding of the, the idea of policing with consent? Very little, uh, and and I think that's not really necessarily to do with. The fact that um, that it's not considered or not thought of, I think it's actually because the infrastructure has been changed so much over the years that it's almost impossible to either determine whether or not consent is there, or to even be in a position where you're sort of, in effect, judged to the point where you can ascertain, you know, put yourself in a position to, to be seeking that consent. And I think what I mean by that is just the you know, police have have in effect retreated backwards and backwards and backwards out of sort of s- smaller, more remote police stations, off the street, back into vehicles, back into uh, centralised police stations, and all the rest of it. So, very sadly, um, and I mean this in two ways, well, at least two ways. Very sadly, the re- the relationship between the police and the public that they're supposed to have the consent of is. Is, is so limited it's almost non-existent and then a little bit like the civil service police are constantly flitting from one job to another which means you don't have 
you know, reliable old constable so-and-so who's been there for at least 20 years and knows everybody. I mean, that, and, and, I, and what's forgotten is that not only does that mean there's a breakdown in community relations and all the rest of it, but think of the intelligence that he would have, that that, yeah. that police force would have if it were done like that. That's how you do it. And you can have all the technology in the world, but unless you're actually there and you physically know who's who and what they're up to, I'm afraid intercepting communications will never, ever do that job. Yeah. But do you, is this a, a, a fantasy that we have? I, I mean, I'm just trying to remember the name of the, um, the guy who used to be a, a, a Satanist who talks about the New World Order and, and, and so on. People keep re- recommending I, have, I do a podcast with him. But his, his thesis is basically that anyone in uniform, um, especially the police and, and, and the military, um, are basically the boot boys of the New World Order. They are not our friends. They never have been our friends. They are, they are betraying their, their fellow citizens. And, and that this notion that, that they are these friendly, well, in the, in the British police case, these, these friendly bobbies that say, uh, even in all, <laughs> um, mm. is, 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 has always been a myth. That they're all kind of Freemasonic uh, agents of of the of the New World Order. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I, I don't mean this disparagingly. I would assume that he he's not been in any of those uniforms himself. I'm not quite sure who it is you're talking about, but I, 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 as, as I said, I don't mean I don't mean to. <laughs> it's okay, no, well, anyway, but no, I mean, I I I take the point, and I think it's I think. With any of those sorts of situations, you only need a small number of people to conform to that mould in order to be able to to sort of tarnish the reputation of everybody. You know, I mean, you you don't hear about, like you say, you don't hear about Constable so-and-so who really went out of their way to to get it right. I think and the problem now, a a large part of the problem, is that even if you do, and, you know, I mean, I like to think that what I was doing, I was doing with the right motives and, and I was exercising discretion in the right way. And, and I, you know, gosh, I'm not, I don't mean to suggest that nobody else was doing that. I worked alongside plenty of people who absolutely understood how to treat people and how to get the best outcomes for people. But the system, I'm afraid, is set up in such a way that it's very, very difficult to achieve that. So, um, yes, I, I, I can see how somebody would form such an opinion, but again, it's that comes from not from from the bottom that is not i i would contest that that is not from rank and file soldiers or police or or, you know any other uniform i would say that that is people in those ranks in those positions being put there by by their chain of command who are either at, at best misguided or at worst malevolent yeah I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going with that. I, 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 that, that seems to be, you know, doesn't sound like, like, like you're covering up for, I, I, I do think that the, the, the rot is, is like, like a fish, you know, from, from the starts of the head. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the, 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 same with the army. Anyone yeah. who gets to chief of general staff or a bit below that is just absolute, just not working for us. Uh, I'm sure it's the same with the police. I mean, look at look at Ian Blair, Tony Blair's favourite yeah. policeman, for example. Yeah. Or yeah. Well, them, 
Yeah, I, I think I think you're compromised. And actually, go, you know, going back a bit to when you were talking about warfare and um, queen and country, king and country. Um, yes, I mean, that, uh, for me, there was a there was a very very distinct turning point in 2005 when Tony Blair was in office and was given what would be referred to as an interview without coffee with Mike Jackson, who was the then chief of the general staff, head head of the army. And it was to do with manpower, funding, resources, all, all the usual stuff. And I think, in a nutshell, he was told by Blair, well, use it or lose it. And if you're not on board with, with what's going on, we will just cut your numbers. And this was when all the... Th- there were a lot of regiments being done away with and amalgamated and all the rest of it. It was causing huge heartache. And as I've said again, I think um, doing the country a massive disservice because... You, know, you go back far enough, people, young offenders, were given the decision, right, mate, either you join the army or you go to Borstal or you go to prison. And I, I worked with people who had had that choice and they had been turned into remarkable people. So, uh, you know, what, what a tragedy to do away with that. Anyway, what happened as a result of this back in 2005 was that the, 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 the leadership, effectively sort of army board downwards, became compromised, I believe. And you can see it in the communications that came out of the MOD. Previously, there had been nothing on the effect of operations in either Iraq or Afghanistan on life in the United Kingdom. There was no link made between the two things. So, in effect, the, what, like what you're saying, you know, queen and country form no part of it and then suddenly you heard the Ministry of Defence talking about keeping our streets safer and that that's why we were there and no one had ever said that before that that was never part of it it was all to do with you know well defeating the Taliban finding bin Laden bringing democracy to Afghanistan it was there was never any inference that our safety here had anything to do with it and then suddenly it did and ever after that that degree of compromise has has been there, and if, you know, if anything, has just worsened. I, I'm going back to that 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 police thing about about the, the discretion. It, it is it is quite yeah. shocking. It's probably the most shocking it is. revelation of this of this of this podcast. That 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 how much of it is them being so instinctively in tune with the thinking of the system that they just do it anyway and how much of it is well if i don't if i don't act on this if okay it's, it's optional but if yeah. i become the only policing what what, what are they called department what are the units called departments um, well constabulary or okay. police force so, constabulary I mean, if, you know cause, cause there would have been an opportunity for, for wonderful constabularies to let yeah. pubs to stay open, not chase ramblers, not yeah. harass people walking their dogs. Yeah, of course. Um, it, it would have been it would have been great PR between yeah. the the police and the public. Like yeah. we've we've got your back, but nobody took that yeah. opportunity. They all went. Right. The, so why? I honestly, I I I just couldn't say. I mean, I think. Um, well, I would hope that anybody who had held views similar to mine going into 2020 could still could not have been more amazed by by what happened and i by which i mean that when you when we read about you know yet another health scare somewhere in china and blah blah i i i you know i just i just sort of sighed and read the next thing you know it was here we go again 
it'll be on the cover of Private Eye with a joke about here's a cut out and keep paper mask and and we just move on to the next thing and and yet here we are three and a bit years later and and the world really has been turned upside down and i think it i think it just caught it, it seemed to have caught everybody unawares if we're to give people the benefit of the doubt and i'm talking about not so much policymakers but people who who sat in you know higher offices like you say in in the tops of police constabularies and whatnot um they i think they were completely blindsided and they i think they thought that there was absolutely no way regardless of their own personal views and i mean i'm not suggesting actually that any of them did have any different personal views i think they all went along with it personally as well as professionally but um but i i don't think there was ever any point at which anyone thought oh no i don't think this is right I think right. they honestly were that caught up in it, and and I you know and I I can say that with with some degree of authority, okay, only on on a sort of single constabulary basis. But I wrote, if you like, I've also got my the the sort of the the pretext of my resignation to yes to to my constabulary, and and this was obviously you know having described what i described i I did i wasn't policing during 2020 during the sort of drone drone and supermarket madness but but the the you know the 2021 um sort of mask and six people in a garden uh and and then the jab thing so so a different kind of madness but i think where it went was was increasingly awful and the the tipping point for me was and I sorry, this is rather technical, but it was um it was a statutory instrument that came out at the end of twenty twenty one. It was December twenty twenty one, statutory instrument one four one six, which was the venue entry requirements, which effectively was the vaccine passport thing. And it, when you when you swear your oath of allegiance, uh, you you talk about people's human rights you talk about fairness impartiality integrity all those sorts of things and yet here we were apparently in a position where according to some utterly sort of nebulous criteria we, we were going to tell some people in society that they were better than other people and there really was absolutely no justification for doing it and less still justification for policing it and so my concern was was sort of at least twofold one was that it was an abhorrent thing to be doing to society or at least to be proposing to do in society to actually walk sort of say up and down the queue of a nightclub and hoy somebody out if they didn't have a a vaccine passport and we'll come on to what that means in a minute um and then the second thing was the incredibly damaging uh potential it had to the to the relationship between the police and the public the you know the, the sort of pr exercise you look at what was going on in australia new zealand canada austria germany where they had already cut people into cut society into and you know there were pitch battles and and i didn't want to see that i didn't want to see colleagues of mine going into potentially harmful situations because of what they had decided to do off the back of bad law so you know there were lots of different um lots of different elements to it so i so i wrote to my chief constable is therefore you know sort of leapfrog the entire chain of command not to be a pain in the backside but because it simply wasn't understood at any lower level and and nor was it considered to be something that was within their gift to do anything about so i wrote dear chief constable 
I appreciate that it is irregular to get in touch with you directly, but these are most certainly irregular times. I'm writing as a concerned colleague as well as a member of the public that I serve. In light of the continued encroachment of the UK government into the private lives of citizens, I'm writing to ask if there are any circumstances under which you will employ or direct the constabulary to effect a division or segregation of society. The House of Commons votes tomorrow on the likely introduction of an instrument of discrimination and the beginnings of a de facto social credit system. At the moment, this presents itself as ordinary participation in society becoming contingent upon the consumption of the product of a profit-seeking pharmaceutical company. This might seem dramatic, and I would hazard a guess that you have not been asked this until now. And yet, despite the efforts of the commercial media channels to suppress it, I am watching as police help create a two-tier society in the countries of our friends and allies in the Commonwealth and European nations of Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Austria, Germany and France, to name a few. If you are able to answer with an unequivocal no, is the Home Office aware of the constabulary's position? If the answer is not an unequivocal no, May I ask when and how colleagues will be told that they are to take part in the introduction of apartheid in the UK? I think you are in a very unenviable position, but that the right course of action is clear. I would be very pleased to discuss this with you face to face. So, That's a cracker of a letter, Charles. That, how well, long did that take you to write? I can't quite remember, but yeah, they probably went it's through good. a couple of drafts. It's good. No, yeah. no, not a word wasted. Anyway, so what happened? N not a word wasted. Was it interesting you should, you should choose that phrase? Because, do you know, it, it honestly wasn't understood. What I meant was not understood by the people that read it. And it was read, it, it went round the whole of the, the chief officer group. So the chief constable plus the assistants and deputies, the chief of staff. And they honestly didn't know what I was driving at. So that that shows. And I know and, I, you know, I can think of the, you know, your early days. I know it persists, but your many, many sort of London calling um, conspiracy or cock up sort of debates. Yeah. The, these guys didn't understand what they were doing. And I'm not saying that that puts blame away from them it, it absolutely doesn't they hadn't sought to understand what they were doing so not only had they decided they were just going to police absolutely every element of it they were going to take whatever was thrown at them they weren't even going to think of the consequences of doing that can i just check with you what which you're referring to your your oath that you well, first of all yeah to whom are you swearing the oath is it to, is it to, so the, to oath... the government or to the or to the, the monarch no it's, it's to the monarch um, so yeah, it, it, it was changed. The um, the oath was changed. The police reform act of two thousand two. So they did. They interestingly because the the previous oath had 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 included the phrases to police without favour or affection, malice or ill will, and basically took that out and put in funda the, the notion of fundamental human rights. And everybody thinks, oh yeah, wonderful. You know those those human rights. They are they are enshrined in law, and thank goodness for it. And I'm afraid the Human Rights Act 1998 is not worth the paper it's written on. Uh, it, it, it is absolutely shocking. You know, hu human rights, for those listening who, who might not have necessarily and perfectly understandably a grasp of exactly what's sort of meant by them, at least in the state that they're written down. But effectively, 
human rights are split into three different categories. They are either absolute, which means that there shouldn't be any conditions under which there's a challenge presented to them, or limited, which means there are certain situations in which that particular right or freedom can be limited or qualified. So they exist unless such and such happens. And you know this this is this is ages old is it, uh, 1998 is is in effect a lifetime ago you know there's the age of terror and yet people seem to have totally overlooked the fact that all these rights are qualified and i'll just you know just to quote the right to liberty and security is qualified by the lawful detention of persons for the prevention of the spreading of infectious diseases of persons of unsound mind, alcoholics or drug addicts or vagrants. Um, the right to respect for a family life, which is Article 8, is ca can be qualified by um, uh, accordance with law and is necessary in a democratic society in the interest of national security, public safety or the economic well-being of the country for the prevention of disorder and crime, for the protection of health or morals, or right. for the protection of rights and freedoms of us. So, you know, the, 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 in a way, the changing of the oath by the Reform Act was quite clever, because, of course, it, to, to say that you're protecting people's fundamental human rights sounds brilliant, but means nothing, or at least means that people can still do, the government can still do exactly as they please. It's actually, I think, Charles, that it's not clever, it's, it's diabolical. And I think you'd understand that. It is. It, it is diabolical. And a lot of it, you know, we've been, we've, we have, I mean, okay, I, I'm, I'm not sort of blaming anyone because I'm, I'm absolutely as much to blame for this as, as the next person. But all this has been there for years. The Public Health Act was drawn up in 1984. The provisions within the Public Health Act, which luckily we haven't actually seen affect themselves over the last three years because they because they invented the coronavirus act but you know the public health act is absolutely appalling what it, the, the provisions it makes the same thing with the public order act 1986 you know these have been around for a long time and yet it's only now that people are beginning to get alive to the fact that these sorts of laws exist well because so um anyway yeah go on they they they, they the, the people who plan these things that they, they they have a long time to do it yeah 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 <laughs> They, 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 they plan sort of in, in, in generations rather than in the yeah. short term way we think, which is why yeah. they're always getting one over us. But tell me, which that letter to your to your chief constable, yeah. which how were you in breach of your oath? What, 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 well, you talked about apartheid. Uh, yes. Yeah, so so I'll tell you why, um, because the, the well, first of all, the, the fundamental principle and this, this accords to what, what's referred to as the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, which is in effect that if, you, if you're confronted by bad law, it is your duty to either disregard it or interpose yourself in some way as to nullify that particular point of law. So therefore, as a police constable, if dealing with, with what is bad law, law that is not natural law that does not conform to the the natural laws then then it should be disregarded so to i like that is is, is that to, is that written into your oath or how how is that understood no 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 this is no again of course not no because it's far too powerful no the the, the way to and again for people listening the the doctrine of the lesser magistrates goes back for years to the sort of time of knox and calvin 
um, written sort of formally enshrined by the pastors of, of Magdeburg in Germany. And um, if you want to read it, there's a very good book uh, produced by Matthew Trewella, who's an American, written in 2013. I'll just show it up to the camera for people who are, who are watching. Um, and um, written in 2013, Matthew Trewella, which is spelt T-R-E-W-H-E-L-L-A. It's very easily available online, but um, but it's set out very clearly. You know that this this sort of thing should not happen. If there if bad law exists, it should be challenged by those within the system. It should. How, how is that binding? In, in with, with, uh, when you when you when you become a policeman, yeah. Or how how well, is that principle binding? You, well, in in effect, you your your sort of partly through discretion partly through duty you're not meant to conduct anything that's unlawful so you you have to effectively take it on good faith that if you either fail to do something or do do something because of your beliefs and you're then challenged over that by the system you should hope that the next chain above you that the say the the you know the magistrates or the county court or whatever would see it that it was bad law and it would go up the chain and be overturned that's effectively how it works that's, so uh, an example of that, to, to, a, to a sort of extent, is um, jury nullification, which is when a judge would direct a jury to either to convict or not to convict, and a jury would disregard that uh, because they held a particular belief about the case and they would decide one way or the, or the other. Um, contrary to that, I mean, you know, law, law does get overturned. Statute law does get overturned. Oh no! Listen, I'm, for, I'm for, totally with you. I, I love the idea of jury nullification. Or I doubt it's it, it, it's it's well, it, well, it's a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Actually, it's a double-edged sword. Very but, much but, double-edged sword. But what, just just I just sorry to pin you down on this. So yeah, you're you're effectively holding your chief constable to account, saying, look, you are about to, but by by creating this two-tier policing system where one yeah. class of people, the jabbed. Um, yeah. or the acquiescent or the, the surrenderers or whatever, yeah. they are given privileged status over people who don't yeah. want to take part in this experiment. Yeah. Um, I, I, I see why why there was room for your principled objection. What I'm saying is, yeah. in what way does that, does that... Why does it breach the oath? Yeah. It breaches the oath, I would say, for several reasons. Um, First of all, you're not dealing with people with fairness, integrity, diligence and impartiality. Mm -hmm. you're, you're definitely not doing any of those things. And, and the reason for that, to go into the technicalities, is that if you remember, the, it was to do with not whether you'd received the, the vaccine, it was whether you had the vaccine passport and you were eligible for the vaccine passport if you had had... Uh, a medical exemption or if you took part in a trial so there were basically four groups of people existed in society people who had had the injection and people who had you know t taken the, the the passport to to demonstrate that people who had a medical exemption but were still eligible for the passport people who had um taken part in a trial still had the passport or people that simply decided they didn't want to take it so you had you had four groups of people three of which hadn't had the injection yes. but but only one of those groups was prohibited from doing all all the things so that's not fair and also it has absolutely nothing to do with what they call health public health safety any of those sorts of things so yeah. it, it's a complete red herring not least because 
there were several very significant exemptions in this statutory instrument. Amazingly, and if we're to if we're to go along with the premise in this case, which is to do with you know infectious disease, so reducing human contact, that's what it seemed to be all about. And yet, exemptions were granted for staff at venues. So if you imagine that somebody, if we, if we have our infectious disease model, somebody standing on the door of a football ground or a nightclub infecting every single person as they go in. And yet that was perfectly legitimate under the statutory instrument. Completely ridiculous. And then also, you know, a, a long list of people, um, police officers, diplomats, officers, you know, holders of X, Y and Z, officers of state, environmental officers, local authority officers, all the rest of it were exempt. So... Just one other thing. Uh, you, you describe it as a statutory instrument. Yeah. How, uh, how obliged are police? I mean, how, was it even legal? What, 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 was it enforceable? Well, that, yeah, I mean, th that's getting into a, a, a sort of separate um, minefield. And, and then we get into really, I mean, we, that, that's a long, long discussion because that's oh. because that because then you're getting whether well, you're getting into to legal or lawful and oh. whether something is, you know, whether something's written down in statute or or not, whether it's effectively sort of a law of the land. And we're getting into the, the difference between common law and statutes and all those sorts of things. So so but no, I mean, um, secondary legislation, statutory instruments uh, are, I suppose, less likely to attract criminal sanctions. But, but that's not to say that they can't. Um, in, in fairness, I wouldn't want to go too much into detail without no. researching it further. You'd be better off talking to somebody, you know, to, to somebody who practices law. Yeah, exactly. I've resisted the temptation so far to go down that rabbit hole precisely <laughs> for, for that Yeah, well, that there reason. you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just tell me, oh, by the way, I've got to go and, I'm supposed to go and pick up my son from the station now. Right, and if, okay. Either we can sort of wrap it up fairly quickly or we, or we can do another half hour when I get back in, in the 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy for that. Yeah, that's okay. fine. Let's do well, let's, that. Let, yeah. Let's do that. Well, I'll go and pick him up now and I'll be on time and then, uh, then we'll, 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 so I'm, I will stop this one now and I'll, okay. send you, I'll send you a new a new um thing when I get back. Perfect. Yep. Bro. Okay. All right. Excellent. See you then. Okay. Um, okay. Um, are you uploaded? You are. Yeah. Well, I, won't, I won't do any. I'll just leave it. Yeah. Okay. That's Shall I? Cool. So for the. <laughs> Viewers and listeners won't notice the seamless transition between this section of the of the podcast and the last section. But like in the interim, Charles, I remembered the name of that the ex. It rather trivialised him by calling him an ex Satanist because there's more to his, more to him than that. Um, uh, he's called Mark Passio, and yeah. I, I, he's he's a serious thinker in in as much as his view. And I wanted to bring you onto this because you mentioned Christianity in your um, in your uh, mm -hmm. biog. Um, his view is that, is that what we are experiencing is a, a spiritual war that mm -hmm. that what's going on down here in this in the materium is also a reflection of what's happening up, up there and possibly down below and that we are battling ultimately against entrenched evil. Now where are you on that? 
Yeah, I, I, it's it is a huge one, and it's I, I think it's very very difficult to arrive at a point in your own mind that makes you feel like you're satisfied that you've got it right, like you actually understand, or at least that's where I am on it. Um, yes, I do believe that there is a much more overt battle or attempt to subvert faith and spirituality than I've ever been conscious of before. But it's it's hard to be, I think it's hard to be objective about it and it's hard to consider with the views or the knowledge perhaps that I have now, how I would have felt about such a thing 20 or more years ago. So I don't mean to dodge the question, but it's, it is a bit of a tricky one to, to pin down, but I'm, I'm very interested in the thoughts that people do have on such a thing. And actually going back to what you, when you introduced him initially about talking about people, essentially sort of the, the fear of not fear necessarily, but, skepticism surrounding people in uniform and I, th- I I do understand where that comes from and I think that is perfectly legitimate and if you if you look at the bigger picture which is the overall state of things and the overall contribution that say police make to society or that the armed forces makes to society to, to society it it is more difficult now I think to put that in positive positive terms um i wrote an article not so long ago about policing which touched on the sort of the the roots of policing in this country going back to the early 19th century and how much uh how much fear there was around what was going to happen and you could say it was prescient i think yeah the, you know the exact restrictions on liberty that were envisaged at that point have really come to come to pass but of course it's just it's, it's you know the way in which it was done i mean what you know it's, it's so hard to tell isn't it that was that was too, well isn't it that that's that, let's just examine that for a moment because this is really interesting uh, one of the the things i've really has really been brought home to me in the last three years in my sort of renewed actually my final understanding of the world, you know, I don't think I understood it before, is the degree to which we denigrate the people of the past intellectually, this this false, completely false notion we have of progress, the idea that somehow we know more because we've got advanced medical science and and there's Mm -hmm. all this stuff we know about the world that that our forebears didn't know. And you mentioned the, the debate that arose at the time when Robert Peel first established a, a, a police force. Um, people were alive to these issues in a way that they probably aren't now because we've all been yeah. kind of brainwashed and and yeah, yeah we have. Yeah, I, th- I think we've been we've been brainwashed. I think um, more than that, we've been we've been completely isolated in in the name of uh, sort of socialization. I mean, it's still the enormous myth that that communications devices in some way make people more connected. I, I think the obverse is true. I think the rise and rise of particularly the mobile telephone, but all forms of other technology with which you're supposed to be able to easily communicate with people have, have, have stripped away so much of 
the meaning in communication that people used to enjoy. And also, it's dulled people's minds. And just to give you a a policing example, um, when, when an incident takes place, and you're trying to gather a picture of what happened. One, one of the processes, obviously, is to approach witnesses and to get accounts from people who were there or in some way can tell you what happened. And the quality of people's statements now, and I don't mean, I don't mean the language they use, but the detail they're able to recall is absolutely pathetic. And there, there are there are exceptions to that. Sometimes you'll come across somebody whose recall is absolutely staggering, down to minute detail, and you just, you know, you are sometimes you're able to verify. You, you know, you might happen to have CCTV footage of the same thing, and you can see what it is that the person is referring to, and you cannot believe that they could remember such a detail. So there are, you know, there are people who who do still retain that ability, but reading reading now. What people remember, the detail they're able to go into, is pathetic. And I had, a, I remember um, dealing with a very interesting historic stranger rape, and it it was went it was you know a mystery for years, thirty years, and then suddenly there was a DNA match, and it all came up, and it's gone through the courts again, and, and the the offender has been imprisoned, and and there we go. But what was so interesting was going through the many, many, many witness statements from the time back in 1990 and they were so detailed and these were just part it was in a public place was in a it was in a park and they the the degree to which people could describe what was happening around them who was there what they were wearing the the senses that they had about this particular person who had been seen by many many people was quite staggering and now you just don't get that because people are so distracted by stuff all around them whether it be you know adverts or music or most predominantly people's mobile telephones so a bit it's a bit of an aside but it has made a massive impact no i like that aside that's really interesting and i was thinking i remember when i first got when i I lived in london for the first time and i i I did my first commute to work on on the tube and one was very conscious of who was in the tube carriage and you sort of made up stories yeah. about them or just just yeah. just whatever um now look at the tube carriage everyone is so involved with their phone that yeah. they wouldn't yeah. that they wouldn't be able to describe the, the passengers or anyway, suppose a bomb were to go off and they were to describe the, the events leading up to that they wouldn't have a clue no, absolutely not a clue it, it, it's yeah i mean and so i think um i think that has had an absolutely monumental effect on the way that people behave in relation to one another and also you know it's it's made it's it's given everybody this direct link to again with say policing you can have a problem have you know something wrong and without thinking about anybody else or anything around you just immediately call make a call to the police and this is you know particularly everybody sort of talks now about the the surge of mental health crises and and all that kind of thing and for the most part the way i see it and i don't mean this to be dismissive it's not dismissive but people who are isolated and do not have a, a sort of nucleated family that can they can depend upon or a group of friends who are in their immediate environment are left in a place that means that they feel to get attention they just they need to make that call and they call the police absolutely over and over and over and over and over do again. they 
Yeah. For what, what sort of things? Well, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of it's to do with self harm. So people will, it's you know, it's the sort of classic. It's always rather disparagingly referred to as a cry to, cry for help. You know, people who just disappear. There, are, I mean, you talk about missing persons, and the, I mean, anyway, there's so much to go into. But the, the you know the, the amount of money generated by people who apparently go missing, when in actual fact they haven't gone missing, they've gone somewhere. That they probably go every single time that they go missing but because they're deemed vulnerable there's there's always an enormous response to it and all the rest of it but if they if they hadn't had a mobile telephone and they was i'm slightly mixing two things but but if if mobile telephones didn't exist let's say and people actually had to talk to each other the chances of these sorts of things happening on this scale are, are vastly reduced and that's i mean you, you know that that's in the sort of empirical evidence in that you talk to somebody who's been working in a police control room for years and they will tell you for a fact that the number of incidents on the log now is probably five or six times what it was 20 or 30 years ago i remember on the marches that one of the things we were all at pains to do apart from i I, and i noticed them there were agents provocateurs on the marches definitely there were people there whose job it was to discredit us and and they were, they were so obvious they were so they obviously did not fit in and yeah. they were there to discredit us and i think possibly even in collusion with the police i mean i don't know but 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 anyway um we we made it our business to be as lovely as possible to the the police who were who were you know we wanted to make them our friends and and ideally bring them on side a bit like those yeah. vietnam era protesters shoving flowers in the barrels of the National Guard's hmm. armor lights, whatever. Um, but um, the, do, do you get any impression? Were you, when you were, because a lot of us who are awake, look, look at the, the, the stuff that's coming down the road and we're thinking, are, is anyone in the police going to act in our interests or, or are they going to stay loyal to the corrupt uh, authoritarian in totalitarian system did you get any any sense that there the were police who might get it what's going on uh, I hate to disappoint people but but no I don't um, I don't get that sense i i get the sense that people are in a job and and this is not i mean this is not exclusive to police i think this was seen across the board i think that people are in a job that they find challenging because of the way that they're asked to do it and lack of support and the the rather ludicrous bureaucracy that that accompanies it and i honestly don't think that people stop and think about what they're doing um it it's it takes it takes quite a significant or or a sort of seriously traumatic incident for people to stop and review what it is that they've done i think and part of that is i i suppose you you sort of say that that there isn't there's no time given to decompression if you you know you you, you would expect if you're if you're in uniform you're in a response role you would expect especially if you're on a late or night shift, you would expect to see some trauma every single time you go out. Really? So, yeah. Um, I mean, in, in an urban area, probably, I mean, sometimes in rural areas it can be far worse, but, but more frequently in, in urban areas. And no attention is given to, to decompressing. People never ever, you don't get back at the end of a shift and sit around and talk about it. 
just doesn't happen. That was that was something the army was trying to introduce when I was, you know, sort of in, in the like mid, well, I could do the first the first decade of, the, of this millennium, this century. Um, it was something that come from the Royal Marines, and it was to do with with trauma. Yeah, it's called trim trauma and risk management, and it was to do with making sure that people didn't bottle stuff up and uh, let it affect what they were doing and what they were able to think about. And, and I, and I, th- I think not nearly enough attention is paid to that. But, seeing, but you know, I have to say, seeing people covered in blood, um, you know, sort of wailing and going at each other, regardless of how many times you've seen it, it's just, it is not a nice environment to be in. And it gets a lot worse than that. And yet people never, ever have the chance to stop and deal with that. And I think, you know, that that's... That's one of the things that prevents people from thinking objectively about any of the other stuff. I mean, you know, if you're if you're doing something that um, that, that seems, uh, I don't know, you know, by comparison, relatively benign, then I I don't think you really would stop to evaluate it. And besides which, that should have been done several stages further up the chain. But of course, there's a massive disconnect between the political hierarchy, like you know, like we've talked about before, where I think the the, the way that sort of internal policy is shaped has very little to do with the with the policing requirement and much more to do with the pressures from national government and media um, and and sort of other you know rather harder to 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 pin down forces um, and then the the sort of the middle tier of management is very very separated from the people that they should really have a much more direct working relationship with so people who are there you know at the interface with the public are uh, are left to to flounder about somewhat and i think some of these some of these big issues you know they're, they're not the ethics of policing is not is not discussed nearly enough the fact that you are a part of the community is not discussed nearly enough it's very easy for people to fall into the trap of thinking of the public as the others as the other yes. side and it, ha- you know, it happens very much with people who are suspects. You know, you have to remember that when somebody comes into custody or, you know, they're just they're named as a suspect in an, in an allegation. That's all they are. They're a suspect. They, they, they might well have done nothing and, um, and frequently haven't. You know, the, 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 I think, again, it's very easy to, to and I, I dare say I wouldn't have a grasp on it, but the amount of police business I would always say, you know, you say probably about 95% of business is generated by about 5% of police customers, as it were. You, you, you know, it's a revolving door. You've got the same people going through the system over and over and over again. And it will just change slightly as to whether this time they're the victim, the witness or the suspect. So it's a, it's a very, very crazy world. It's very easy for people to get jaded by exactly that. Um, so for people in, in amongst all of that, for people to stop and consider whether what they're doing is right or wrong is something that I'm afraid I just don't think gets addressed and it's not being done for them, which it should be. Yeah, well, thanks for confirming every, everyone's worst expectations. Because <laughs> I don't think... I don't yeah. think but, you're surprised. Yeah. Anyway. Fair enough. But, but I tell you what, I tell you what I should go on to say, because and, and this does bear relation to to the... You know, there, there's a lot of talk about the sort of the police state and the, and where we were going, and even talk of sort of martial law and all this kind of stuff. And the army started doing um, vaccines and, and this, that, and the other. Yeah. One one thing I think that that people do not pay enough attention to is the sort of the the reality of the situation, which is that the police, the numbers involved, 
and I know there's more to it than simply statistics, but the, the, the adult population of the United Kingdom is about 59 million. The total police in the United Kingdom is, is in the region of 164,000. And the total armed force is about 150,000. You can, you can beef those numbers up a little bit by, you know, reserves and, and other sort of departments and whatnot. But still, those are the raw figures, which, which means that for each of those entities, they, they amount to about a quarter of a percent of the adult population of the country. That's roughly one uh, soldier or, or sailor or airman to every 400 people in the country. Now, if you, if you are in fear of being policed to the point where you can't run your life as you would like, then it cannot be affected through police or armed forces simply numerically i mean just just that i mean you don't even have to you don't even have to imagine that everybody's going to kick off at the same time but the 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 ability of any police force or constabulary to manage more than a certain number of incidents at one time or to provide a sustained response to a particular campaign or incident take the um take the truckers convoy in canada which obviously you know, received an awful lot of, of international attention. If that, if something like that happened here, there is absolutely no way in which, over a sustained period, the police would really be able to do anything about it. And those numbers are always, uh, well, they're artificial because they're they're the, they're the total strength. They're not the number of people who are actually on duty at any one time. And of the people on duty, only very few of those are actually going out and about. And it's exactly the same with the armed forces. The, the number of people on on the strength of a particular regiment is never anywhere near the number of people that are actually fit to fight and deployable at that moment. And it's just, I think it's just something worth bearing in mind. I'm not, I'm not trying to sort of, you know, incite insurrection, but... But the point I think I'm making is that to be in fear of police popping up and telling you what to do and this, that and the other is, is frankly unfounded. And also people should have the confidence to carry on about their business. The, one of the things that happened a lot during 2020 was police absolutely abusing their position by asking people to stop an account to say so to stop people and ask them what they're up to police are perfectly entitled to do that in the same way that i am if i see somebody on the street i'm completely in my you know entitled to say what are you up to where are you going who are you the other person does not have to answer there's absolutely no legal requirement to answer a stop an account question so you put the ball back in their court. If they suspect that you've done some, something wrong and all the rest of it, okay, well, then then you start to go through a different process. Then they do have powers of search, of, of arrest if it comes to it. But but it's for them to justify their actions. To For the stop and account, that you absolutely do not have to talk to them. And I think people are not aware of that. Right. Um, yes, well, I, I, I'm sort of lightly reassured by what you say about the numbers but of course they do have the, the monopoly of force i mean the, the, you know the army particularly have access to weapons that we don't yeah absolutely but i mean it okay if, if it you know, if it comes to that well we're you know we're all we're all kind of done for and it is every every man woman and child for themselves so i so i i think to play it out to that point is 
well, uh, you know, I, I, I don't really see if there's anything to be gained in, in thinking like that. Um, but anything in between, I think it's 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 perfectly reasonable to think that people could, uh, particularly on a on a small local level, not really have to live in fear of yeah. being meddled with. Right. Yes. I, let me pick you up on one point, which which I, I've I've heard before and kind of shocked me, that both am I right in thinking that both the military and the police swear loyalty to the monarch, not to the country or any other aspect, not to the people? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've got it here. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you. so you're suddenly and sincerely declare and affirm that I will well and truly serve the Queen in the office of constable. OK, obviously, this is out of date. But, yeah. Um, uh, and then you're you 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 do the human rights bit according equal respect to all people and that i will to the best of my power cause the peace to be kept and preserved and prevent all offenses against people and property um so yes your your oath is to the monarch yes you're absolutely right because because there was a time when i would have thought what do you do at least you know good old royal family um they're not the government the government are horrible yabu hiss but but the queen god bless you ma'am um, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and they're and they're proper toffs, and they understand, they love their country. I don't buy into any of that anymore, and particularly in the case of of King Charles, as we must learn to call him. That that he, this is a man horribly in bed. I mean, overtly in bed with the with the World Economic Forum, um, with the the Green Agenda, which we know is is essentially a control mechanism. It's it's a it's a, a sort of a cloak of righteousness. Um, to mask the the nefarious agendas of of the new world order, I, I I feel no loyalty whatsoever to Charles, and I don't trust him an inch. And yet here we have the armed forces and the police swearing loyalty to this this person who is not even who doesn't even love his own country. Because if he did, he would not be supporting the, the World Economic Forum. He'd, he'd be he'd be supporting the resistance of the World Economic Forum. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, I mean that that does. I think very much um, tie into um, to what you were mentioning earlier uh, about. Um, sorry, I've now forgotten his name as well. Um, who oh, what? The... Um, yes, Mark Passio. That's it. Yeah. So, so that's yeah. I mean, you're right. Uh, but and, and this is the, this is the problem with so many of the so many of the sort of the you know the the. the elements of the architecture of the of the state or of society that we've i suppose previously to an extent relied upon or at least relied upon to do the right thing or at least at least adopt the right sort of code um but yes i i i'm afraid to say i do totally agree with you i think the the trust in the specifically this monarch and his offspring is you know, ha- ha- appears to have been shattered in a way that's probably unrecoverable. Yeah, yeah. I, did, I, I mean, I, the one thing I will say is that uh, we still have a sense. Lots of us have a sense of the kind of country we'd like to live in and the people that we are. Um, so it's not a complete fantasy. It's just that the 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 goodness 
and decency lies within us, not within the system. That, that we thought yeah. that, that that these institutions were were the uh, bulwark against against this stuff, and they're not. They've all been they're infiltrated not. and and taken over. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, yeah. Which is which is yeah is something I, I completely agree with, and I think um, I think this is this is where so many people have been, and I think you know this will chime with your audience very much. I think people you know you have had such an amazing array of people on this podcast who have educated viewers and listeners beyond their wildest dreams i should think uh, and given people a sense that you know knowledge is is power it absolutely is and yet i think people still feel this incredible sense of frustration and helplessness at knowing what so many of the problems are, but not having the first idea really what to do about it and how to somehow change their change their fortune. And I, you know, I, th- I think it is a it is a very difficult position to be in. But I don't think it's one of despair. I think there are things that people can do, and I think that's where you know that that's sort of personally the bit that I'm most interested in is where where one finds solutions and how you do albeit in a different way you're you're putting your trust elsewhere but i think how you do get your life back on track and <laughs> tell us well i think and you you know with that loss of trust of all those like you say all the all the previous uh you know sort of um anchors around which our lives have apparently been secured we have to do away with them, but but in their entirety. And obviously, this is you know sort of can only really be done by degrees. But I think to to more or less separate yourself totally from the state and therefore have as little to do with any form of authority as po- as possible, and be as self sufficient. And I don't. I'm not. I don't mean. Um, I'm not talking about necessarily providing sort of food and water for yourself, but but in terms of running your own affairs. Uh, and I think there really are ways to do that, but I think it's easy. And again, it goes slightly back to the to the technology thing. You know, we all we all fall into what I think is a, a little bit of a trap of spending a lot of time researching things and bringing ourselves up to speed with what's going on in all these particular areas and being horrified by you know what else what else has gone on, gone wrong, how how dreadful this is, and forgetting to actually do anything. Um, and I think that there are still ways in which people can be challenged. I think, you you know, most of the the big sort of state architecture is very difficult to deal with, but I think that there are still challenges that can be made. I think people should stop accepting corruption of any form. I think it happens all the time. We, we tolerate the most minor corruptions, and I think that they in turn enable much greater corruptions to, to to occur you know people need to be stopped and asked what what it is they're doing about this that and the other and i think you know an example was because we you know we'll talk about it but an example was the the churches the churches being closed to absolute disgrace and completely undermined the whole purpose or the sort of the espoused purpose of the church in the first place and yet the arrogance within the clerical body itself was just mind-blowing to think that they didn't really have to pay any attention to what anybody said and it just so you know just so happens that 
they were challenged by by people and i you know from my own personal experience i i challenged my bishop on the closure of the churches particularly our church here which is very remote and rural and i was given a rather glib response uh, which was sort of you know well um you, clearly you're too stupid to understand but but everybody's dying and and we just really can't have that um and then it was a bit of a sort of throwaway line of well you know if you want to check it with the insurers then i'm very happy for you to do so and i thought well there, there we go i'll call your bluff since i am the secretary of the pcc for what it's worth so i uh i rang the insurers and said um so just tell me what what is the what is the insurance liability with with health you know i mean if somebody walks into the church and says that they got ill there is is the church liable and and in, is this you know this apparent health scare in some way different from anything else so the chap was a bit bamboozled and said well i'll, I'll tell you what, i have to get back to you so he very dutifully rang me back about half an hour later and said um said no it, it's no different there's no there's no liability so for somebody to for somebody to be able to prove that they went into a particular church and that it was not just the church, but it was because somebody else had gone into that church and, you know, willfully licked a hymn book and they happened to lick the same one, you know, and, and you go through all that stuff. Um, and so the answer was there, there was no insurance issue with it. So I wrote back and said, well, guess what? There, there isn't one. Following week, open the church. And so there... There is a way, okay, that, that's a very small example, but there, there is a way in which people can be challenged, but I think should be challenged. And I would say that with almost all organisations, doing that, just going straight for the top, effectively, you know, if you think of, of all the sort of ills in the world, one of the worst is customer service, which is just, you know, it's, it's just it's a just dreadful buffer just to just to cover people in absolute nonsense and stop them from ever really getting to where they want to go so you clearly would always leapfrog that go straight to the top of whichever organization and almost always you will get dealt with and there will be some result and even if there isn't you will be forcing that person to consider something that they haven't yet considered um, and i think the only i think the exception to that is is british politics which has the absolutely opposite view if you go to the top they absolutely don't care because they know they can fob you off whereas if you start if you effectively cut their legs from underneath them by going through the lower levels and you know you look at what's been happening now with the with the low traffic neighborhood 15 minute city thing and sandy adams success and what's happened in thetford and all that kind of thing you know you start there and you go further up and by the time it gets to westminster or hollywood or wherever that it's a dead duck because they they've got nothing left to stand on. So I think I think we should be hopeful. That's a really good piece of of, of practical advice. That I mean I like your story about the you, you shouldn't play it down. It's a really good story because how did how did your ghastly bishop take it? Well, you know I mean if i'm afraid to say i wouldn't have said with a particularly good grace um, <laughs> but i think i think this has been the, the problem and, the, and do you know this is this is one of the things again you know look the church is such a good example you sort of feel i i have felt as a church goer and and not just a church goer, but to so many other things that it's you feel first of all 
the, the sort of barking response to all the government policy, a lot of people jumping before they were pushed, you know, churches desperately closing before they were even told to and all that kind mm. of thing. You you feel, oh, my goodness, that's ruined it for me forever. I don't ever want to go back to that place. I can't bear what they did. I can't bear how mad this all is. And then after time, what I found is I get a sense of sort of purer indignation. And I feel that I don't want to have that taken away from me. You know, it's not they might be the incumbents for now, but it's not Mm. their church. And it's for us to. And I, I know this sounds a bit sort of. I don't know, a bit flighty, but, it, but it's it's for us to reclaim all of this. And I I felt it with. I mean, it's a silly example, it's frivolous, and I know it's to sort of you know, it's a, effectively to keep workers away from thinking about serious things. But I've always loved cricket, and cricket again, I felt was tarnished and ruined because first you know they 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 went crazy for Black Lives Matter for a bit. They've sort of dropped that, but then they you know they pretended that that cricket grounds were were you know sort of places where you would go to die if you dared turn up. And I, but that's that's not it. It's not it's not really for them to do so. If you if you want to enjoy something, you should be able to. And I think we you know we when I say we, the people that feel strongly about whatever it is, whether it be the church, something they used to participate in. I think they should you know they should really take active steps to reclaim that. And you can't do that by just looking at a computer screen or just going on a mobile telephone finding stuff out. You've actually got to do stuff. Yes. No, I, I just, we, we can all do it. I remember, um, I can't remember which Christmas it was, but the verger asked me, of our local church, asked me whether I'd, I'd do the reading um, in the Christmas service. Um, and I said, I will only do it if I'm not required to wear a mask. And of course, you know, I was about the only person, I think there was another person not wearing a mask. And so I did stick out like a sore thumb. But we have to we have to fight our battles where we can, don't we? Yeah, we do. No, we absolutely completely do. And I think, I, I, yeah, I mean, you're right, it is fighting a battle. But I but I do, I think the other thing is to is to try and take away the sense of conflict. We shouldn't be in conflict with each other. Because let's face it, the vast majority of people, exactly like somebody in church who thinks they're doing the right thing by telling other people to wear a mask, they are not the problem. They are not, you know, in effect, the enemy. So to to, to be able to bring people round through kindness and engagement, I think has got to be the, the way to do it. And I'm not suggesting that you can, you know, by doing that, you can disarm them to the point where you've red pilled them immediately and they're completely on side. But you 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 cannot do that through through confrontation. Yeah. Yeah. Um now I've got a I've got a, a few more um quick fire questions for you. When you were in Afghanistan, you were you were in Afghanistan, weren't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um did you use Psalm 91 to protect you from being killed? Uh, I have to admit that um, I actually, do you know, we were given, have I got it with me? Yes, I have. We were all given this before we deployed. Um, To those of you that aren't watching, um, I'm holding up the New Testament and Psalms. And you wouldn't want to drop it because it's covered. It's covered in camouflage, so or at least you'd have to be very careful where you dropped it if you wanted to be able to pick it up again. 
Um, I I did dip into it. I'm afraid to say I I remember talking to the Padre a fair bit out there and and whatnot. But actually, yeah, I I, I would love to have said that I engaged more with Psalms, with the New Testament, all the rest of it. But no, uh, apparently it really I, works. The the US yeah. US Marine Corps apparently use use Psalm ninety. It's their favourite. Yeah, well, I think. Combat. Yeah, no, I can well believe it, and I think they, I think they're still in effect. Um, I, don't, I don't mean in terms of their capabilities and advancements and stuff, but I think they're still well behind us in that they haven't, they they're not they're not shy to be using, you know, the, the Lord's name. Um, I think everybody here has been so terrified of expressing any form of religious belief for such a long time that it's just it's it's more or less disappeared from all you know all, all forms of military life it's very very sad but but it people is. feel that they shouldn't do it it's sort of as though it's embarrassing it's terrible yes yes i think i, I just i i've heard so many stories about heroic padres um with the, like the one with the sherwood sherwood yeomanry who went in you know sort of retrieving sort of yeah. burnt out bodies from from burnt out tanks and things like that yeah. and ensuring yeah. Um, yeah but but you're right yeah i think i think like there shouldn't be any atheists on the battlefield i i, I well there probably aren't many are there well no i think i think when it comes to it I, I think there aren't i think you're absolutely right yeah and uh, yeah yeah um now a much more important question did you ever get to drive a rainbow colored police car very thankfully no or, um, or or participate in a pride a pride event no i funnily enough i i wondered if that was going to come up and i i i do somehow i i remember getting emails about it but i amazingly um i didn't seem to have got caught up in any any such activity which um was a merciful which is why you're not why why you're not a chief constable well probably right exactly yeah no i mean that actually to, to be to be honest you, you, it's a very it's a very interesting issue because that that exactly is exactly what i'm talking about that is corruption that is complete and utter corruption the relationship that a lot of constabularies have had with organizations like stonewall is that that's corrupt you know and this is exactly the sort of thing that shouldn't be accepted but because of the cause at stake it's it's just it, you know people change the rules they bend the rules and that that is not right it is well it's absolutely a breach of that very thing that you said that, that policing without you cannot discriminate against against yeah, absolutely yeah yeah um and we you never i think because i i had to dash off to do, to do a a station pickup you never yeah. did explain what happened after you sent the letter to the, the um your boss yeah yeah you know i mean sort of sad but predictable story which was that it was obviously batted around by those guys for a little bit um they quite clearly had absolutely no intention of changing their direction of travel they were very very reluctant to concede any of my points and 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 you know just it's so funny in a way to think back to that time because it it was it was completely insane and it did 
it, it, you know, there was a, there was an awful lot of pressure in that environment. I don't mean pressure to to sort of get um, jabbed or anything, but you it, you just couldn't avoid it. You know, you had I suspect all police forces will have had the same thing, but there was a dedicated team within the within the constabulary that would send at least weekly updates. You know, called the, the COVID, they were the COVID team because so updates on this. And of course, you know, they, they were immediately pushing the jab and they pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And then slowly but slowly, there were then sort of little throwaway remarks like, oh, well, it turns out we're, we're, we might not be as protected as we thought we were going to be. Mm. And this, that, and the other. Yeah. And, and, and sort of, you know, it, you really do. If, you, if you're planning to go on holiday this summer, then you really need to get jabbed. Not because you might die if you go abroad, but because without demonstrating that you've done it, you won't be allowed to get on an aircraft. So it was never, ever looked at for the right reasons. Um, and then shortly before I left, Lo and behold, actually, well, in fact, more or less concurrent with the beginning of my resignation process, I saw one of the early studies into uh, endothelial cardiac issues with with the with the um, the jab, and I sent it on to this team to say, look, um, I think people should be made aware of this. There are, you know, there are it seems safety risks with it, and I wouldn't want to think that I knew this and my colleagues were were unaware of it and it was staggering you know and again talk about corruption it it was sent to the force medic or whatever he was called the the doctor who absolutely whitewashed it and just said yeah this is perfectly normal inflammation of the thing you'd, you'd expect that with a vaccine and um to go any further to research this any further would be i mean you know i'm paraphrasing but it would basically be too hard too much like hard work so we're not going to change anything and, you know, I was staggered. And I, I thought, well, so I replied by at least sort of having the audit trail saying, well, if it subsequently turned out that people had had cardiac issues because of this injection and you knew and you didn't tell them, then I think they'd feel quite miffed. And um, just before I left, I, I remember an email coming out with a, a notification that if you had had an adverse reaction, this was the code that you were supposed to put into the um, the system, which ran the sort of the, the employment database, which ran all your leave and all the all the various things. So I mean, it it was absolutely staggering. So therefore, to go back to the the resignation letter and the uh, you know my tone about that there is no justification for for cutting society in two, and I you know I I use the word apartheid very deliberately, and they could not see it. It was just it was what they, why on earth would people not take a god-given vaccine mm. that was that was the line um and so yeah there was uh nope we're not going to not police it so i i said well you know, the only other thing was then well you can you can see what the police federation says you know they're the, they're the union you know are they going to sort of stick up for you or, or do anything and i thought well i think i probably know the answer to that but i i went through the motions and got in touch with them and again same same deal absolutely nothing wouldn't wouldn't touch it with the barge pole so i said well i'm sorry but you know the, the principle of it is pretty flipping serious and i i will i will not be part of a you know even though i wasn't i knew i wasn't going to be down sort of pulling people out of people out of nightclub queues and whatnot but i i wasn't going to be part of an organization that was 
tasked with doing that and, and indeed had no line in the sand. I mean, that was one of my questions but further on was, well, where does it stop? Well, it doesn't. We will doesn't. continue to do whatever. Yeah, it doesn't. I think what you've established fairly well, fairly convincingly, is that those of us who are, are, are awake, we, we, we look at the world and, and go, how can these people not know at this stage? How can they be so blind? Uh, yeah. They must be, they must know and they're, and they're lying. Whatever. I, I think in most cases, it's, it's, it's much simpler than that. They've, they're under a spell. They've, been, they've bought so much yeah. propaganda. Yeah. I was listening to a, 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 a podcast with, that Brian Gerrish was doing. Um, I must, I must have, I haven't done Brian yet. It's just disgraceful, um, given that he's, you know, he, he's one of the original gangsters. Yeah, and he was, he was describing a conversation with his friends, neighbours about um, how he'd said to them, "Look, I've spoken to lots of doctors and nurses across the country, and they say that the hospitals really." pretty empty at the moment and mm -hmm. and this 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 friend said no no they're not that they're, they're, they're full that they're, they're overstretched he said no 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 i've spoken to doctors and nurses mm -hmm. with experience of the system around the country and they tell me this no 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 the hospitals are overstretched and you realize that that that, that so many people are just parroting lines that they've said i mean in the same way my conversation with tobes the other day about ukraine and he was just regurgitating media talking points about Russian atrocities and Putin being putler and, and yeah. so on. You can't penetrate yeah. the, the brains of people who've been brainwashed. No, no it, it is amazing. My, my start point in those sorts of conversations is sometimes to ask people, about an event they can remember being part of that was subsequently reported in the media. Or it doesn't have to be an event, but, but something that they had first-hand experience of that's then reported in the media. And you ask, was it done accurately? And the answer is always, no, not at all. It was absolute rubbish. They couldn't have been further from the truth. At which point you say, well, so why is it that you think that anything else in that form of media would be accurate? And people will see your point, and in 90% of cases, they will go through the motions of understanding and thinking that they're with you, and then they will just revert back to going along with everything else. It, it, it is, I'm afraid, it is perfectly extraordinary. I think everybody has different reasons for doing it, um, and, and, you know, getting outside of your comfort zone is... is is a difficult thing to do. It really is. I think for a lot of people who've lived their whole lives depending upon certain sources for reliable information, to suddenly be asked to believe that it's all rubbish is really, really difficult, especially yeah. when you're part of a group of people that all believe the same thing. And it, it just, it, it just, you know, it's like picking at a thread and the, suddenly the whole thing comes apart. You know, how do you, how do you now find a foundation for the friendships that you've had with these people what is it now based on you know previously you shared views and opinions and a, a world view and and now you sort of don't it's very difficult it's really hard it's really hard finding i find it so hard finding stuff i can talk about 
without getting myself into trouble. You know, I mean, I do, I do tend to drop truth bombs here and there, but at the same time, yeah. one does need the odd topic of conversation, which yeah. is neutral, so that you do, you're yeah. not always the, the person who's goading people with with crazy views. Yeah. Um, and all I can think of is is pretty much great works of literature and hunting. <laughs> That's about all. I can... oh, could be worse. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, but, I, but I, you know, it can be done. I think I think I, I agree with you. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of increasingly hard. But I think to I, I find certainly rather than trying to ram your point of view down other people's throats, I think to ask people how it is that they've arrived at their point of view can be a, at least a way of not being antagonistic for one and certainly for trying to give people room to manoeuvre in order to allow themselves yes. to see your point of view without having to outright disagree with you. Because I think that's, that is what we've lost. And that's what, you know, you think, well, I'm sure you could trace it further back, but the, but the sort of the ability to agree to disagree with people that you know and like, or don't know, or don't particularly like has just evaporated. And that went, you know, the, the build up to the dreadful, EU referendum just stripped that away. You know, the Scots referendum did it. There was no, you could not agree to disagree. It was utterly, the whole thing was completely polarised and therefore horribly vicious. Um, Charles, you've been absolutely brilliant. Um, and I, I, I heard the the sound of, of tyres on gravel, which means that my wife is back and she's going to be wanting to know why, why I haven't prepared supper. And I'm going to be in trouble. But well, I, I, before I go, I want to say to you, I would love you to have been my company commander. I would, yeah. have, I would have felt in very, yeah, I would have felt that you weren't going to send me out on stupid missions. You'd, you'd have put some thought into it before you sacrificed me. <laughs> and um, and thanks for your all, all your advice. It's it, it, it's been really great talking, and I hope I get to meet you um, at some stage. Yeah, well, that would be wonderful. But no, thank you very much indeed for for having me on. Um, thank you to the audience for their forbearance listening to somebody they will certainly have never heard of. But um, but no, I think also what I would say as a as a a long time Dellingpod listener is that your and I you know you 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 are sort of aware of it, but your strength in teasing out these issues that people just have been sort of denied access to has has been phenomenal. And I think what you what you're able to do by by you know, getting the best out of everybody and, and bringing out information that is that is absolutely critical to to sort of enhancing the quality of your life is a service that I don't think you get enough credit for. So I would say that that you're doing a, a fantastic job. And I think, you know, we, and I mean people who listen to your podcast, people who think some of the things that we think, we will win, we will get there. Maybe not collaboratively or collectively but as individuals and as small communities and families and that's where we have to start so um so thank you very much indeed for having me I, yeah, it'd, be, it'd be great to meet you sometime that's really and thank you for your really kind words I, one thing I've, I've had to learn is to take compliments gracefully rather than do that thing some people do and they, they, they get embarrassed you get, compliments are nice things and i i really appreciate yeah. it so, so thanks Good. um Good. charles where can people find you read you oh well, I, yes, I haven't gone much into the sort of monetization, commercialization side of it yet, but I do. I write and podcast uh, for UK Column, which is at ukcolumn.org. 
and you'll find pieces mostly about policing at the minute, but I do also write about defence, faith and spirituality and about the environment there. And then I do have a Telegram channel, the website of which, if you don't use Telegram, is t.me forward slash unbound today. And if you're on Telegram, therefore, you just look up Unbound Today, and that will be my Telegram channel. So that's where I am at the minute. Great. And it remains to thank all of you lovely viewers and listeners. Of course, Charles is absolutely right. I am indispensable, and you must support me. Um, You're doing doing the Lord's work. Um, So do please continue supporting me, uh, or support me if you don't already. On I think Locals is probably the best. Um, subscribe star. I'm gonna I'm gonna up my literary um, endeavors there. Um, Patreon if you want to subscribe star, but I don't think you get quite such good access. Um, uh, locals and oh yeah, buy me a coffee. That's always good. Um, <coughs> thanks very much, and thanks again, Charles Manor. And I'm getting off to cook supper now before I'm getting any more trouble. Lovely. Bye, James. Thank you very much. <laughs>